0: We at Amazing Stories are thankful for and gracefully accept the donations we receive from our listeners from across the world who count on the unique programming we provide. You too can donate through the link provided in the description section of each episode. Please keep in mind that the continued support from our growing audience helps us fulfill our mission of bringing you a new Amazing Story every day. Thank you for listening, and we hope you continue to enjoy our stories. The science room was on the second floor. Robert Neville's footsteps thudded up the marble steps of the Los Angeles Public Library. It was April the 7th, 1976. It had come to him after a half week of drinking, disgust, and desultory investigation that he was wasting his time. Isolated experiments were yielding nothing. That was clear. If there was a rational answer to the problem, and he had to believe there was, he could only find it by careful research. Tentatively, for want of better knowledge, he had set up a possible basis, and that was blood. It provided at least a starting point. Step number one, then, was reading about blood. The science of the library was complete save for the thudding of his shoes as he walked. Outside there were birds sometimes, and even lacking that, there seemed to be a sort of sound outside, inexplicable perhaps, but it never seemed as deathly still in the open as it did inside a building. Especially here in this giant grey stone building that housed the literature of a world's dead. Probably it was being surrounded by walls, he thought, something purely psychological, but knowing that didn't make it any easier. There were no psychiatrists left to murmur of groundless neuroses and auditory hallucinations. The last man in the world was stuck with his delusions. He entered the science room. It was a high-ceiling room with tall, large-paned windows. Across from the doorway was the desk where books had been checked out in days when books were still being checked out. He stood for a moment looking around the silent room, shaking his head slowly. All these books, he thought, the residue of a planet's intellect, the scrapings of futile minds, the potpourri of artifacts, the leftovers that had no power to save men from perishing. His shoes clicked across the dark tiles as he walked to the beginning of the shelves on his left. His eyes moved to the cards between shelf sections. Astronomy, he read. Books about the heavens. He moved by them. It was not the heavens he was concerned about. Man's lust for the stars had died with the others. He passed them by and entered the main reading section of the science room. Morning sunlight filtered through the dusty windows, and he saw motes floating gently on the current of its beams. He looked down the row of long wooden tables with chairs lined up before them. Someone had put them in place very neatly. The day the library was shut down, he thought, some maiden librarian had moved down the room, pushing each chair against its table carefully with a plodding precision that was the cachet of herself he thought about that visionary lady. To die, he thought, never knowing the fierce joy and attendant comfort of a loved one's embrace. To sink into that hideous coma, to sink into death, and perhaps return to sterile, awful wanderings, all without knowing what it was to love and be loved. That was a tragedy more terrible than becoming a vampire. He shook his head. All right, that's enough, he told himself. You haven't got the time for maudlin reveries. He bypassed books until he came to medicine. That was what he wanted. He looked through the titles books on hygiene, on anatomy, on physiology, farther down on bacteriology. He pulled out five books on general physiology and several works on blood. These he stacked on one of the dust-surface tables. Should he get any of the books on bacteriology? He stood a minute, looking indecisively. Finally he shrugged. Well, what's the difference, he thought? They can't do any harm. He pulled out several of them at random and added them to the pile. He now had nine books on the table. That was enough for a start he expected he'd be coming back as he left the science room he looked up at the clock over the door the red hands had stopped at 4:27 he wondered what day they had stopped as he descended the stairs with his armful of books he wondered at just what moment the clock had stopped had it been morning or night was it raining or shining was anyone there when it stopped He twisted his shoulders irritably. For God's sake, what's the difference? he asked himself. He was getting disgusted at this increasing nostalgic preoccupation with the past. It was a weakness he knew, a weakness he could scarcely afford if he intended to go on. And yet he kept discovering himself drifting into extensive meditation on aspects of the past. It was almost more than he could control and it was making him furious with himself. He couldn't get the huge front doors open from the inside either. They were too well locked. He had to go out through the broken window again, first dropping the books to the sidewalk one at a time, then himself. He took his books to the car and got in. As he started the car, he saw that he was parked along a red-painted curb facing in the wrong direction on a one-way street. "'Policeman!' he found himself calling. Oh, policeman! He laughed for a mile without stopping, wondering just what was so funny about it. He put down the book. He'd been reading again about the lymphatic system. He vaguely remembered reading about it months before, during the time he now called his frenzied period. But what he'd read had made no impression on him then, because he had nothing to apply it to. There seemed to be something now. The thin walls of the blood capillaries permitted blood plasma to escape into the tissue spaces along with the red and colorless cells. These escaped materials eventually returned to the blood system through the lymphatic vessels, carried back by the thin fluid called lymph. During this return flow, the lymph trickled through the lymph nodes, which interrupted the flow and filtered out the solid particles of body waste thus preventing them from entering the blood system. Now, there were two things that activated the lymphatic system. Breathing, which caused the diaphragm to compress the abdominal contents, thus forcing blood and lymph up against gravity, and physical movement, which caused skeletal muscles to compress lymph vessels, thus moving the lymph. An intricate valve system prevented any backing up of the flow. But the vampires didn't breathe. Not the dead ones, anyway. That meant, roughly, that half of their lymph flow was cut off. This meant, further, that a considerable amount of waste products would be left in the vampire's system. Robert Neville was thinking particularly of the fetid odor of the vampire. He read on, certain phrases standing out. The bacteria passes into the bloodstream. Strong sunlight kills many germs rapidly. Under the stimulus of bacterial attack, the phagiocytic factories rush extra cells into the bloodstream. He let the book drop into his lap, and it slipped off his legs and thumped down on the rug. It was getting harder and harder to fight, because no matter what he read, there was always the relationship between bacteria and blood affliction, Yet all this time he'd been letting contempt fall freely on all those in the past who had died proclaiming the truth of the germ theory and scoffing at vampires. He got up and made himself a drink, but it sat untouched as he stood before the bar. Slowly, rhythmically, he thudded his right fist down on the top of the bar while his eyes stared bleakly at the wall germs. He grimaced. Well, for God's sakes, he snapped jadedly at himself. The word hasn't got thorns, you know. He took a deep breath. All right, he ordered himself. Is there any reason why it couldn't be germs? He turned away from the bar as if he could leave the question there. But questions had no location. They could follow him around. He sat in the kitchen, staring into a steaming cup of coffee. Germs, bacteria, viruses, vampires. Why am I so against it, he thought. Was it just reactionary stubbornness, or was it that the task would loom as too tremendous for him if it were germs? He didn't know. He started out on a new course, the course of compromise. Why throw out either theory? One didn't necessarily negate the other. Dual acceptance and correlation, he thought. Bacteria could be the answer to the vampire. Everything seemed to flood over him then. It was as though he'd been refusing to let the sea of reason in. There he'd been crouching and content with his iron-bound theory. Now the flood of answers was already beginning to wash in. The plague had spread so quickly. Could it have done that if only vampires had spread it? Could their nightly maraudings have propelled it on so quickly? He felt himself jolted by the sudden answer. Only if you accepted bacteria could you explain the fantastic rapidity of the plague, the geometrical mounting of victims. He shoved aside the coffee cup, his brain pulsing with a dozen different ideas. The flies and mosquitoes had been part of it, spreading the disease, causing it to race through the world. Yes, bacteria explained a lot of things. The staying in by day, the coma enforced by the germ to protect itself from sun radiation. A new idea. What if the bacteria were the strength of the true vampire? He felt a shudder run down his back. Was it possible that the same germ that killed the living provided the energy for the dead? He had to know. He jumped up and almost ran out of the house. Then at the last moment he jerked back from the door with a nervous laugh. God's sake, he thought. I'm going out of my mind? It was nighttime. He grinned and walked restlessly around the living room. Could it explain the other things? The steak? His mind fell over itself, trying to fit that into the framework of bacterial causation. Come on, he shouted impatiently in his mind. But all he could think of was hemorrhage, and that didn't explain that woman. And it wasn't the heart. He skipped it, afraid that his newfound theory would start to collapse before he'd established it. The cross, then. No, bacteria couldn't explain that the soil? No, that was no help. Running water, the mirror, garlic. He felt himself trembling without control and he wanted to cry out loudly to stop the runaway horse of his brain. He had to find something. God damn it, he raged in his mind. I won't let it go. He made himself sit down. Trembling and rigid, he sat there and blanked his mind until calm took over. Good Lord, he thought finally. What's the matter with me? I get an idea, and when it doesn't explain everything in the first minute, I panic. I must be going crazy. He took a drink. He needed it. He held up his hand until it stopped shaking. All right, little boy. He tried kidding himself. Calm down now. Santa Claus is coming to town with all the nice answers. No longer will you be a weird Robinson Crusoe, imprisoned on an island of night, surrounded by oceans of death. He snickered at that, and it relaxed him. All right, then, he ordered himself. You're going to bed. You're not going to go flying off in 20 different directions. You can't take that anymore. You're an emotional misfit. The first step was to get a microscope. That is the first step, he kept repeating forcefully to himself as he undressed for bed, ignoring the tight ball of indecision in his stomach, the almost painful craving to plunge directly into investigation without any priming. He felt almost ill, lying there in the darkness and planning just one step ahead. He knew it had to be that way, though he grinned in the darkness feeling good about the definite work ahead one thought on the problem he allowed himself before sleeping the bitings the insects the transmission from person to person were even these enough to explain the horrible speed with which the plague spread he went to sleep with a question in his mind and about 3 in the morning he woke up to find the house buffeted by another dust storm And suddenly, in the flash of a second, he made the connection. The first microscope he got was worthless. The base was so poorly leveled that any vibration at all disturbed it. The action of its moving parts was loose to the point of wobbling, the mirror kept moving out of position because its pivots weren't tight enough. It had only one nose piece, so that he had to remove the object lens when he wanted any variation in magnification. The lenses were impossible. But of course, he knew nothing about microscopes, and he'd taken the first one he'd found. Three days later, he hurled it against the wall and stamped it into pieces with his heels. Then, when he'd calmed down, he went to the library and got a book on microscopes. The next time he went out, he didn't come back until he had found a decent instrument. It's just one more example, he told himself, of the stupidity of starting off half-cocked. Yeah, 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 he answered disgustedly. He forced himself to spend a good amount of time familiarizing himself with the instrument. He fiddled with a mirror until he could direct a beam of light on the object in a matter of seconds, He acquainted himself with the lenses. Of the latter, he learned to place a drop of cedarwood oil on the slide, then rack down until the lens touched the oil. He broke thirteen slides doing it. Within three days of steady attention, he could manipulate the milled adjustment heads rapidly, could control the iris diaphragm, and was soon getting a sharply defined clarity. He never knew a flea looked so god-awful. Next came mounting, a process much more difficult, he soon discovered. No matter how hard he tried, he couldn't seem to keep dust particles out of the mount. When he looked at them in the microscope, it looked as if he were examining boulders. It was especially difficult because of the dust storms, which still occurred on an average of once every four days. He was ultimately obliged to build a shelter over the bench. He also learned to be systematic while experimenting with the mounts, He found that continually searching for things allowed that much more time for dust to accumulate on his slides. Grudgingly, almost amused, he soon had a place for everything. Glass slips, cover glasses, Petri dishes, all were placed in systematic locations. He found, to his surprise, that he actually gleaned pleasure from practicing orderliness. I guess I got old dad's blood in me after all he thought once in amusement. Then he got a specimen of blood from a woman. It took him days to get a few drops properly mounted in a cell, the cell properly centered on the slide. For a while he thought he'd never get it right. But then the morning came, casually, as if it were only of minor import. He put his thirty-seventh slide of blood under the lens, turned on the spotlight, "'adjusted the draw-tube and mirror "'and adjusted the diaphragm and condenser. "'Every second that passed "'seemed to increase the heaviness of his heartbeat, "'for somehow he knew that this was the time. "'The moment arrived. "'His breath caught. "'It wasn't a virus, then. "'You couldn't see a virus. "'And there, fluttering delicately on the slide was a germ. I dub thee vampiris. The words crept across his mind as he stood looking down into the eyepiece. By checking in one of the bacteriology texts, he found that the cylindrical bacterium he saw was a bacillus, a tiny rod of protoplasm that moved itself through the blood by means of tiny threads that projected from the cell envelope. These hair-like flagella lashed vigorously at the fluid medium and propelled the bacillus. For a long time he stood looking into the microscope, unable to think or continue with the investigation. All he could think was that here, on the slide, was the cause of the vampire. All the centuries of fearful superstition had been felled in the moment he had seen the germ. The scientists had been right then. There were bacteria involved. It had taken him, Robert Neville, 36, survivor, to complete the inquest and announce the murderer, the germ within the vampire. Suddenly a massive weight of despair fell over him. To have the answer now, when it was too late, was a crushing blow. He tried desperately to fight the depression, but it held on. He didn't know where to start. He felt utterly helpless before the problem. How could he ever hope to cure those still living? He didn't know anything about bacteria. Well, I will know, he raged inside, and he forced himself to study. Certain kinds of bacilli, when conditions became unfavorable for life, were capable of creating, from themselves, bodies called spores. What they did was condense their cell contents into an oval body with a thick wall. This body, when completed, detached itself from the bacillus and became a free spore, highly resistant to physical and chemical change. Later, when conditions were more favorable for survival, the spore germinated again, bringing into existence all the qualities of the original bacillus. Robert Neville stood before the sink, eyes closed, hands clasped tightly at the edge. Something there, he told himself forcefully. Something there. But what? Suppose, he predicated, The vampire got no blood. Conditions then for the vampire bacillus would be unfavorable. Protecting itself, the germ sporulates. The vampire sinks into a coma. Finally, when conditions become favorable again, the vampire walks again, its body still the same. But how would the germ know if blood were available? He slammed a fist on the sink in anger. He read again. There was still something there. He felt it. Bacteria, when not properly fed, metabolized abnormally and produced bacteriophages. These bacteriophages destroyed the bacteria. When no blood came in, the bacilli would metabolize abnormally and swell up, ultimately to explode and destroy all cells. Sporulation again. It had to fit in. All right, suppose the vampire didn't go into a coma. Suppose its blood decomposed without blood. The germ might sporulate and... Yes, the dust storms. The freed spores would be blown about by the storms. They could lodge in minute skin abrasions caused by the scaling dust. Once in the skin, the spore could germinate and multiply by fission. As this multiplication progressed, the surrounding tissues would be destroyed, the channels plugged with bacilli. Destruction of tissue cells and bacilli would liberate poisonous, decomposed bodies into surrounding healthy tissues. Eventually, the poisons would reach the bloodstream. Process complete and all without blood-eyed vampires hovering over heroine's beds, all without bats fluttering against estate windows, all without the supernatural. The vampire was real. It was only that his true story had never been told. Considering that, Neville recounted the historical plagues. He thought about the fall of Athens. That had been very much like the plague of 1975. Before anything could be done, the city had fallen. Historians wrote of bubonic plague. Robert Neville was inclined to believe that the vampire had caused it. No, not the vampire. For now, it appeared, that prowling vulpine ghost was as much a tool of the germ as the living innocents who were originally afflicted. It was the germ that was the villain, the germ that hid behind obscuring veils of legend and superstition, spreading its scourge while people cringed before their own fears. And what of the Black Plague? that horrible blight that swept across Europe, leaving in its wake a toll of three-fourths of the population. Vampires? By ten that night his head ached and his eyes felt like hot blobs of gelatin. He discovered that he was ravenous, He got a steak from the freezer, and while it was broiling, he took a fast shower. He jumped a little when a rock hit the side of the house. Then he grinned wryly. He'd been so absorbed all day that he'd forgotten about the pack of them that prowled around his house. While he was drying himself, he suddenly realized that he didn't know what portion of the vampires who came nightly were physically alive and what portion were activated entirely by the germ odd, he thought, that he didn't know. There had to be both kinds, because some of them he shot without success while others had been destroyed. He assumed that the dead ones could somehow withstand bullets. Which brought up another point. Why did the living ones come to his house? Why just those few and not everyone in that area? He had a glass of wine with his steak and was amazed how flavorsome everything was. Food usually tasted like wood to him. Furthermore, he hadn't had a single drink. Even more fantastic, he hadn't wanted one. He shook his head. It was painfully obvious that liquor was an emotional solace to him. The steak he finished to the bone, and he even chewed on that, then he took the rest of the wine into the living room, turned on the record player, and sat down in his chair with a tired grunt. He sat listening to Ravel's Daphnis and Chloe sweets, one and two, all the lights off except for the spotlight which lit a mural on the back wall. It was a scene of deep northern woods, mysterious with green shadows, heavy with the silence of manless nature. He managed to forget all about vampires for a while. Later, though, he couldn't resist taking another look in the microscope. You bastard, he thought, almost affectionately, watching the minuscule protoplasm fluttering on the slide. You dirty little bastard.